Forgiving does not mean excusing. Many people think it does, but it does mean that you must make every effort to kill every taste in your own heart, every wish to humiliate or pay him back. C.S. Lewis. Welcome back to the 44th edition of Living a Whole Christian Life. This is Dr. Jim Schrader, and we continue our focus on the psychological dimension this week as we turn to begin a series on turning distress into joy. The previous quote that I spoke of from C.S. Lewis speaks to one of the five keys of turning distress into joy, which is forgiveness. And one of the really fascinating things is that although we know forgiveness is certainly a time-honored Christian principle, it's actually an extremely well-researched therapeutic technique. If you looked into PubMed or PsychInfo, kind of one of the major databases, you would find that forgiveness has into the thousands of studies that have looked at how it can be therapeutic for many different reasons. And so we're going to dive into this today and really talk about the keys to effective forgiveness. It's interesting to note that there are many different ways that forgiveness can be helpful for us from the psychological side. It can decrease the traumatic experiences and just the effect of those on us. It can also improve coming back from child abuse, even those who've experienced it decades ago and recognize the power of forgiveness. It can help us deal with random acts of violence people may have experienced at different points in their lives. And overall, what we find about forgiveness is that it's associated with increased psychological health, also increased physical health, although we're focused on the psychological dimension here, but decreased anxiety, decreased depression, decreased experiencing of stress. So, you know, again, it's one of those things I think that for much of our life, you know, when you've been part of the Christian tradition, you think about forgiveness and how it equates to so many spiritual goals that we have. But the beauty of this as we get into this idea and the series on turning distress into joy is that forgiveness is really the first key to improving our overall psychological functioning. But here, there's a couple things that we have to remember to really use forgiveness as effective as possible. The first, and this is often a misnomer, is the recognition that forgiveness is First and foremost, an intrapersonal process, not an interpersonal process. So to explain that a little further, forgiveness is first and foremost about ourselves and dealing with the difficulties that we've experienced from other people and coming to terms with that in a way that creates a better ability to move forward. And again, it creates a better sense of just functioning before we even think of it as an interpersonal, which is again, maybe reaching out, direct forgiveness for somebody else who's wronged us before we think about that process in many ways. And in fact, many times, you know, we may not even have an opportunity to forgive someone interpersonally. Maybe they're no longer around or maybe they've passed on or there's a lot of different reasons why we may not have an ability or even the opportunity or desire to forgive someone directly. But first and foremost, forgiveness is always an intrapersonal process. And I think that's a really big key because a lot of times we're intimidated by the idea of reaching out and intentionally forgiving someone who's really wronged us. But the point of this is that we have to start with ourselves and think about how many times in probably your own life and even my life, you recognize the need to forgive someone, but you've really struggled with it. And, And by struggling with it, it's The idea behind forgiveness is it's really supposed to be a course of action within ourselves to create a better state of mind, to help us kind of pursue who God calls us to be, not to be stuck in a position over a course of weeks or months or years or even decades where we have this bitterness that develops. 
So beyond the idea of recognizing the intrapersonal process that begins for forgiveness, we also have to recognize that there's really two main types of forgiveness. And I, I really encourage all of you to check out the research by Everett Worthington. Everett Worthington is an emeritus faculty member at Virginia Commonwealth University who is a worldwide expert in forgiveness and actually works with a lot of Christian organizations around this. And one of the things he points out is that with the two types of forgiveness, the first type is what we call decisional forgiveness. And decisional forgiveness is kind of like what it sounds, which is that you're deciding to forgive the person intentionally and to really work to let go of those negative thoughts and emotions. In many ways, if you think about this, decisional forgiveness is very much the intersection of free will as it pertains to our Christian faith, is that we literally say to ourselves, look, I I am going to make this intention to forgive this person, to forgive this, you know, this individual who I feel has wronged me. And I'm really, really going to make the intention to let go as many of those negative thoughts and emotions as I can. It's kind of like C.S. Lewis said at the beginning is, I want to kill as much of the taste in my own heart, the taste of getting back at a person or, or humiliating them or just that sense of bitterness. And so the difference between decisional forgiveness and then what we call emotional forgiveness, what Worthington talks about, is emotional forgiveness is the process of replacing negative emotions with positive feelings like compassion and sympathy and empathy. But here's the key is that one, emotional forgiveness in many ways is more difficult than decisional forgiveness, but it actually depends on decisional forgiveness. You can look at the decisional forgiveness idea as a gateway to the potential for emotional forgiveness. And ultimately, when we get there, that's really where the benefits increasingly come. But we can't get there without having the intention first. And so he talks about this really neat model. And again, I encourage you to check out his research. He's actually got what we could kind of call a self-help workbook. I've gone through it myself in regards to particular couple areas that I've struggled to forgive people. And you can really go through this on your own um, when you get into this research, and this is available online and has been well-researched and documented that these strategies do work. And so he talks about what's called the REACH model. And the REACH model is the R stands for recall the hurt as objectively as possible. The key within this part of the REACH model is the idea that we often become so emotionally intertwined with our bitterness towards other people that we struggle to step back and see it as objectively as possible. And in seeing it objectively, like C.S. Lewis is saying, it doesn't mean that there wasn't something that was wrong, but there's some exercises that he kind of takes people through and to say, okay, let's really look at what happened here. And let's really try to be an objective observer and discern, you know, whether or not all of that emotional angst that we have is really... I guess, displaying and really characterizing what happened because very often it's taking us down even a worse road. The second part of the model, the E part, is to empathize, is to really try to understand the viewpoint of another person. And again, this is often hard when we don't feel like forgiving, but the key here is to step back and say, okay, look, again, I don't have to agree with what they did, but they may have their own reasons for doing something towards me that they felt like were legitimate. Maybe they felt like they've been wrong too, or they were getting back at me or whatever. But the key again here is that you really step back and go back to that social dimension that we've talked about before and empathize 
with the other person and the uh, particular position that they're in. The third part of the REACH model, the A, is the altruism. And I really love this idea. The altruism is the idea here is that we're giving the gift of forgiveness. You know, there might be times where we think that, you know what, I don't even think this person deserves it, right? Of course, we might not deserve it either in situations where we've wronged someone else. But the idea of the altruistic giving of forgiveness is that we decide at some point, this is a gift I'm giving to another person. And in essence, it becomes a gift to ourselves. And I may not feel like they deserve it, but sometimes I need to give this gift to let go of where I'm at. And I think it's a really beautiful visual to think of that idea of I'm just simply giving it the gift as God would give to me of saying, look, if God gives me mercy and I don't deserve it, then certainly I must extend that mercy to other people. The fourth part of the REACH model is the C, committing to forgiveness even when obstacles come. And, that, and you know, the challenge is obstacles are going to come throughout this process. And the idea of that C is to say, look, I am committing this 100%. And even if there's back steps and either, even if challenges continue to present themselves, I am fully, fully engaged in this forgiveness process. And the final part, the H of the REACH model is the holding on, which is that you're not forgetting the hurt. But again, you're of yourself the choice to forgive. You're holding on to that sense of like, this choice, this this choice that even if my emotion rises back up again, I'm holding on to the fact that I'm making this choice, that I'm making this decision. And so as we think about this model, I think it's a really key idea about how we can apply that gift of Christian forgiveness um, in a real scientific way. And I think that, you know, very often we think, well, if I haven't felt like I've forgiven someone, that I must not have forgiven them at all. And actually, the reality is both the science and the theology indicate that just because sometimes you don't feel like it or sometimes those negative emotions rise back up again doesn't mean you haven't made the step. And in the end of the day, that's really all we can do is to take the steps necessary to forgive. All right, now part two on turning distress into joy. Quote, a fine line separates our angels from our demons. Shane Niemeyer. Shane Niemeyer had just tried to hang himself, and it too had failed. Like much of his life to that point, which had been spent in and out of state custody since his adolescent years, his road had hit a dead end. But in the depths of his despair, thoughts of a different kind surfaced with one idea in mind, Iron Man. Sitting in a straitjacket, awaiting sentencing as a homeless heroin addict, he had turned the pages of an endurance magazine to pass the time. As he began to read more about the triathlons, there was something about the discipline, the drive, the pursuit of a difficult goal, which began to consume him. The thought entered his mind, maybe he could be one of them. Maybe his life could change forever. His troubles began as a teen in central Illinois. By the time he was 18, he had already been arrested for theft, burglary, and driving under the influence. After skipping out on college at Colorado State University, his addiction only worsened as he found himself on the streets of Boise, Idaho. By the time all of his sentencing was over, he would land in jail 25 times. He began exercising intensively during his stays, often running laps around the small courtyard. In 2005, he placed 50th overall in his first half Ironman held in Bend, Oregon, with a time of 5 hours, 8 minutes. In 2010, he landed himself in the granddaddy of all triathlons, the World Championships in Kona. It was the year he finally said goodbye to official state supervision of any kind. Today, Shane is a strength and conditioning coach in Boulder, Colorado. 
He has now done eight full Ironman triathlons and continues to train intensively. In talking about his life, he often discusses how the neurotic, excessive personality traits that fuel drug addiction and the life of a high-risk crime are the same kind that enabled him, like others, to become an elite athlete. So this is a kind of an incredible story of Shane Niemeyer going from literally rock bottom to the top of the athletic world. And I think the key here and what we really want to speak to today when we get into part two of turning to stress into joy is this idea that God has created us as beings full of all sorts of desires and urges and compulsions and curiosities and drives and interests, whatever you want to call them. We're going to characterize them as drives. We really are composed of all of these aspects. Sometimes we might say, well, this is part of your original sin. We might just describe it as being part of our genetics our individual experiences, our immediate surroundings, our collective culture. The reality is we really don't know where everything comes from. But what we know is that we are a people of drives and urges. And the reality is that if we don't do something productive with them, then they can really become an unproductive aspect of our life. And to take us to places like Shane, or even not nearly if it's that bad, take us to places even in our own homes and our own relationships where we really don't feel good about how we're managing these drives. And so what we find is that we really have to do what we call channeling. Now, let me be clear. I'm not talking about channeling of spirits here. What I'm talking about with channeling is, quote, a way, a course, or direction of thought or action. Instead, another way, it is utilizing energy and drive in a positive way, right? So it might be taking the stress from a workday and channeling it into a run. It might be taking some anxiety or edginess and channeling into cleaning. It might be taking intense sadness that you're feeling over a particular situation and channeling it into a journal entry. It might be all sorts of emotions that you simply channel into very explicit prayer. Whatever it is, whatever we feel, the reality is that we have to do something with it. I think that this is a real big key because We talk about the idea of free will so much, and we often see it as just will. But what we realize is that we have to be not only creative, but we have to be savvy about the way that we use things. And I mean savvy in a very positive way, because these dynamics are ever evolving, right? They're ever shifting within us. And what we find is that they're also affected by how we define ourselves. So it's interesting, the assumptions that we make about ourselves are really important in what ultimately we do with these particular drives. So for example, they found in research that those who see themselves as kind of a hostile, aggressive person, which by the way, is not good for your health overall to sustain that, struggle to channel some of their feelings of negativity towards others in a more positive way. So it's really important for us to look at how we define ourselves and ask ourselves, now, wait a second, do I, do I want to be a hostile, aggressive person? Do I want to be kind of a edgy, neurotic person? Do I want to be this or that? And then this is not about denying you know, who we perceive to be, but it's actually asking ourselves that just because I have these drives and urges doesn't mean that it should completely define me. Because if it defines me, what research finds out is that it can actually really make it hard for us to channel and use these in a more positive way. The other thing is that we have to just be aware of the urges. We have to be honest about the urges that we have. So often we act like, oh, it's something environmentally that's driving, you know, I don't have the time or 
other things are happening and it's preventing us from really doing what we should be doing. But we found that within research that you have to be aware of even the beginning of these urges. As an example, we can teach kids and adolescents and of course adults how to take tics, which seem very involuntary, but become aware of what's called the premonitory urge. It's that period right before a tick occurs. And once they increase awareness of that, it's almost like an aura right before the tick, we can teach even relatively young children how to what we call habit reversal training, which is to substitute that particular tick with something that's much more maybe socially acceptable or even productive in general. But without the awareness of the urge and without the awareness of the onset of the urge and what even maybe triggers it, it's difficult to teach this. The other perspective that's really important about this idea of channeling is that for the longest time we have known that self-control from the preschool age on is one of the biggest predictors of pretty much every outcome we desire. This might be, you know, like our grades or academic success, even into adulthood, our occupational, relational success, our financial stability, the likelihood of from committing a crime. We know that self-control is really malleable. It's one of the few things that early on can be identified that if you improve that area, it actually improves a lot of the areas I've mentioned in others. But if you don't, and then self-control remains low, it's a real risk factor for people for the rest of their life. Well, what's interesting about it is that we often think of self-control. Of course, we talk about self-control in our Catholic and Christian faith, right? The sense of, you know, that self-control is kind of a gift. It's a really important thing that we developed. But what we're finding is that it's probably not so much about self-control as it is about self-channeling. It's the idea that how we allocate that urge and what we do with it is really what we're finding at the cutting edge of the science It's not so much about stopping the urge, it's about channeling it into something that's much more productive. And it's about teaching our four-year-olds and our six-year-olds and even um, all of us as adults how to begin to use the urge in a godly way. So as we get to the end of this podcast today, we're going to continue our series on turning distress into joy. Again, I think it's important to note that our Christian faith puts a premium on forgiveness and on self-control. But I think if you're many of you like me, you've heard that over and over, but you really haven't necessarily been given the tools oftentimes to use those in a productive way. And this is once again what I love about you know what we're doing here, about this idea of living a whole Christian life, because we are finding that science and faith can merge to create opportunities for greater holiness and health and the life that we want. And this is Jim Schrader. Be holy, be whole.